Well, I suppress my feelings for so many years. You rise to the point that it's like a, you know, an atomic bomb inside of you that you can't retain it anymore. It has to come out somehow. Yeah. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Huascaiga, on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, I take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This episode, a rather queer road trip. Corey DeGroote asks, where can we learn about queer history in Edmonton? Our producer Sam Power and I drove Corey all around Edmonton to answer that. This is a story that taught us about a long-distance romance, the dangers of cross-dressing in the 1930s, and about coming out late in life. It starts on a beautiful summer day, parked just outside Corey's apartment. My name is Corey DeGroote. Um, I am, I would consider myself an Edmontonian now. I've been living in Edmonton for close to 10 years now. And I'm queer, and I... Um, have been out for just over like five years so yeah this queer history thing is really interesting to me um so you this is a little bit sort of backwards from how this podcast usually works usually people come to me with a question then I tell them like okay yeah we can fit you on the podcast but in this particular case um a couple people had asked me general things about learning about queer history in the city and you were one of them and I uh basically course you into being on the podcast <laughs> so what uh, could you um, just for listeners give a little background on what you reached out to me about and why you were curious about that mm-hmm. sure um, I don't even know where I heard about the Edmonton queer history project but I heard about it and I just thought it was really fascinating and the idea of queer history in Edmonton specifically seemed really interesting so I decided to leading up to Edmonton's pride which was at the beginning of June um, that I would learn more about Edmonton's queer history and then each day for the week prior to the Pride Parade post facts about Edmonton's queer history. There were some that were more just Canadian queer history and then with a picture of Edmonton's, um, some of Edmonton's architecture and I made kind of a rainbow out of (laughs) all the different buildings. I had to do some tweaking to get certain colors. Um, But yeah, it it was great. Yellow was the butter dome. Yeah, yellow was the butter dome. Um, green was the old Walter Dale Bridge, and uh, blue was Manulife Place. I think red was a flat iron building, which took a bit of like to make it seem more red than orange. <laughs> so yeah, this is a, an Instagram series, right? Yes, an Instagram series. Yeah, yeah. And what, like, why does this? matter to you, learning about queer history in Edmonton? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I recognize that as a queer person living in 2017 that I have a lot of privilege and I feel safe and I feel supported. And at the same time, I recognize that that's, it hasn't always been that way. Um, and how I said it on Instagram is that diversity has not always been celebrated. And we got here somehow and there were a lot of people that were really instrumental in that. and. Um, that history I don't think is documented or known about, well, at least to me. And so I think that out of respect and thankfulness, I think it's important to 
learn more about it and to highlight it if we can. Yeah, your question really interests me for exactly the same reasons, I think, wanting to sort of know the context for how we got to a place where people like us can, um, so many of us can live much, much more safely and openly than it would have been possible a couple decades ago. Um, Yeah, so I wanted to um, sort of approach this question of where can we learn about queer history in the city through um, uh, a lens that would be applicable to anybody learning about history in the city too, which is that we're going to take you on a road trip of three different ways to learn about history, basically. Um, So uh, today we're going to go to the University of Alberta Archives first. We're going to meet with an author who has found a cool box of documents that she thinks more people should know about. And uh, uh, she wasn't sure how to get this information out there in the city. So I said, let's put it on the podcast. Um, And then we're going to meet Tom Long from Fort Edmonton, um, who you were in contact with, uh, to learn more about what Fort Edmonton is doing um, in learning about and trying to do some interpretation around queer history. And then uh, we're going to take a pause, um, and then we're going to regroup in a couple days, and we're going to meet somebody to learn about uh, queer history through someone's own life story. Um, What do you think it will mean to you to learn more about queer Edmontonians? I think it'll give me a sense of pride, um, kind of understanding the people who have contributed to where we are today. Because it's like anything, like we're always making progress and the people that are instrumental in that, um, I think, deserve recognition. And so I think especially with something like sexuality and openness and diversity, like those kind of things definitely need to be um, highlighted. And so, yeah, it'll give me a sense of pride and also kind of appease my curiosity about it all. (laughs) Like the amount of gay or queer people in the world hasn't it's not like there are more of us now you know it's just there have always been queer people but it's kind of interesting to think that they just haven't had much of a voice for such a long time so we set off to pick up sam and drive out to the university of alberta archives They're about to move, but they're currently in a building called Bard, the Book and Records Depository, out on the east side of the city. I took a wrong turn, and we ended up driving past King's University, which was serendipitous for this trip because, as Corey pointed out, King's is where Delwyn Vreen was a lab instructor in the 90s, until he was fired for being gay. It was the Klein era, and Alberta at the time refused to recognize freedom from discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation as a human right. Delwyn Vreen fought them all the way to Canada Supreme Court and won. And now Corey has literally been a poster boy for Kings. He studied there, and according to him, they put him on an ad because he was a grad with a job. Anyway, the second time we took a wrong turn, it didn't mean anything, except we should have been paying more attention. There it is. Oh, Bart. Great. Okay, good. What an adventure. Yay! Like busy staring at Google Maps, we would have totally been yeah. like, hey. Hello. Hello. Hi. Are you guys here for the archives? Yes. Okay, let me just go grab. 
Good morning. Hi. 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 Morning. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Uh, I'm Chris. Make yourself at home. Hi. 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 Chris. Uh, Jim. Jim. Yeah. Uh, this is Corey. Hi, Corey. Hi. Hi, Seth. <laughs> uh, I was just, as I was just saying, uh, make yourself at home here. Um, material is here. We kind of went through it. Uh, there's a finding aid there if you need more. We're down the hallway to give us a shout. We can pull some more material. But we got about 10 or 12 boxes here for you. So. Um, we have with us the wonderful... Hi, I'm Laurel Diedrich Maine, and uh, I started down this path actually as part of researching for my novel, Awake for the Dreamland, which is historical fiction, Edmonton-based, um, and one of the primary characters is gay, and uh, I knew that there had to be gay people around this city in the <laughs> 20s, 30s, 40s, probably since time began, and uh, so even though the book is fiction, I wanted to make sure that I had a sense, a little sense of uh, perhaps what it was like to be gay at that time, and just happened upon a great archivist at the city who said, hmm, I recall some files on this university professor. You might want to look at those. And so that led me here and into these files. And uh, yes, I would say I'm 90, 90, 99% sure that, uh, you know, I'm outing him now, so that's a little scary. <laughs> but, um, you know, very highly esteemed Professor J.T. Jones was also um, gay. So you've been through these files? Um, a lot of them, yeah, yeah. And you picked a box that you think is the one to focus on today, right? Yeah, I did because um, I think it 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 has in it the 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 proof or the smoking gun, as it were, and that is some uh, correspondence from his uh, friend lover at the time who um, was from Winnipeg, I think, and was a dance reviewer for the Winnipeg Free Press newspaper, I think. And they had um, evidently quite a, quite a lengthy love affair. And uh, the letters are, are beautiful. So we'll, we'll come across some of those letters. Um, yeah, so let's take this box into the slightly quieter room, I guess. okay, I have to tell you this story. When I was a student at U of A doing my practicum in archival studies, I came across these letters and I was so shocked. This is what got me going. She says, I was so shocked and I went to my instructor and said, oh, I don't know if we should be keeping these. Mm -hmm. And he said, are you kidding me? <laughs> that is exactly why we keep everything. Those are the real treasures. That was the real man. And it was a huge lesson for her as an archivist in the value of that material because it is completely uncensored. It's completely, you know, she, she was just shocked at what was clearly this homosexual relationship that was evident in these letters as this student is going through them, right? Mm -hmm. She said it was the most, um, you know, one of those really great parts of her education as an archivist and for her instructor to say no 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 this this is a great 
thing we have here. Because in his entire lifetime, he would probably never have been able to be out in the community. But in our, I'm older than you, but in your and my generations, we can access that. And I find it very comforting. I find it very, you know, it's a, it's a great relief to know that people are, you're not alone, right? That, um, yeah, long before you or you or any of us walked the earth, there were people struggling and exploring their sexuality at the same time as they were leading um, great and important lives. Mm -hmm. Just people doing their thing, which is what I'm all about. You know, that he didn't burn them. Like that, he just that the letters are still around. Like he was brave enough to be like these might be uncovered at some point. Yeah, and that's fine. Yeah, he of course he would know. Yeah. He would know. I sort of always offer up a little, you know, prayer of thanksgiving to J. T. Jones for, you know, uh, having his collection of papers donated to the university. He what, what a great gift! It may have been intentioned, right? So. You know, thanks, JT. <laughs> How long did it take you at first to sort of find the piece you were looking for? Uh, not very long, because fortunately I did have a name. I knew right. that it, I knew that it was Casimir Carter, and that um, and it was in the very first box here. So here we go, Casimir C M Carter. Oh yeah, so 1953, 54, 55 to 79 and then there's something here in 19 in the 80s um see look at the handwriting look at this that's so beautiful isn't it beautiful like we don't know um we don't know what that even looks like these days you know like people don't handwrite like this um okay so here's a little thing i learned so notice how underneath we should find a little juicy bit and read it aloud, shouldn't mm -hmm. we? But I'm just at the end here where he sincerely Casimir, and then he writes I-L-Y in small, oh, do you know what that is? I love you. In just small, lowercase script, so it's pretty. And, and, and so of course, right? Of course, he loves him. Um, so this is from Casimir, is it? Casimir is his name, yeah. So dear John, it seems such a long time since Saturday, Friday, that I, or, oh man, this is going to be harder than I think, then I thought I'd drop you a line to, re to review acquaintanceship. I trust you had a pleasant trip back to Edmonton and that your nephew is enjoying his visit with you. I must say I envy him and am looking for forward to the day when I can be in Edmonton myself. In my mind, I carry a happy memory of a hand, a hand raised in farewell as the bus pulled away. Wow, his writing is beautiful. <laughs> I thought of going to the depot, but since your relatives were to be there, I would have given us no, appoint, no opportunity to get together. The future will have to take care of that. I would appreciate a letter from you, even though you are a poor correspondent. <laughs> I, I do have a lazy streak, which I periodically overcome. 
and get a few letters away to friends among which you are remembered. Should I keep going? Like, is that Casimir, this picture? This is Casimir. Oh, wow. He's hunky. Oh, yeah. dang. <laughs> well, sorry, I just, I just hijacked you. I just hijacked no, 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 you because no. I... Um, where did I let's see? They went, they've been to a lake. They've been to a lake. Um, let's see. I was most pleasantly surprised to get your second letter so soon and to hear you were well. Yes, I had quite a pleasant weekend at the Lake of the Woods. Nothing exciting. Did a lot of swimming good we can do this by committee right <laughs> as i enjoy the water and also some boating in an outboard motorboat i tried to get a tan all too quickly and got a bit burned and have been peeling all week <laughs> i hope to have a nice even year um oh nice even tan after my uh Next exposure, I'm sending you a picture taken at Lake Winnipeg last year. Look at this, he's holding up this big log, like a, wow. What an attractive person. What a very attractive man. And in a pretty skimpy swimsuit. Pretty yeah. skimpy swimsuit. Um, yeah, taken at Lake Winnipeg last year, as I have not finished the role in my camera. I'll send you one from this in my next letter. I'll be glad to have a picture of you taken recently or some time ago, if you please. Yes, I would like to visit you. Weekends, but distances being so great, it is impossible. I may try to get my holiday toward the end of September, which would be a... Huh? Rare, rare, rare. rare but... And then it says more pleasant time of uh, year to travel. It would be about September 27th. How would that suit you? It would be a much more pleasant time of year to travel. Oh, there you go, yeah. It's like putting a puzzle together. So as we read through these letters, they do actually have a weekend rendezvous. And then they write about it. He writes about it afterwards do we know how they met no i i don't think i do know how they met i was thinking about um the coded kind of language in these and how vague they're being and i, I was trying to think okay so these are private letters why would they um have had to use this coded language do you do you want to help give us context for why that would matter at this time for private correspondence Generally, whether you were gay or not, at the time people were less explicit in how they expressed their sexuality, period. Whether, you know, even if you were straight, even if you read love letters, which I have of, of straight couples, they're, they're much more, um, or, you know, much less explicit. There's that sort of innocent quality um, yeah, I think it was just indicative of, of the times. Uh, I was also thinking of, um, I, I saw the Guys in the Skies play last year, uh, Witch Hunt of the Strand, yeah. and that um, tells part of the story of some of the people who were part of the Strand theater community, and in 1942, the 
Edmonton police coming through and, and accusing people of sodomy and looking through their personal letters as yeah. evidence. It's, it's only, this, this letter is only, what, 11 years after that happened? Yeah, 1953. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think they would still be very careful, you know, um, in their letters to not, to not overdo it because it's, and that, I mean, imagine just that I-L-Y for I love you. Of course, I think if, if there was a raid and the police were reading this letter and if they looked at that photo, and I mean, they would be able to tell, but it's not overt. Yes, I too have thought I would not get myself deeply engaged again and have been hurt a few times, though I have tried never to hurt anyone myself. But I think we have, is that given? I think, we have, I think we have grown to understanding and trust each other even during our short friendship. My love to you shall be hoping to hear more from you in Chicago. Sincerely, Kazimir. What day is that? October 14th, 1953. Cycled paper, St. Patrick's Day, 1980. <laughs> They're old men now, right? My bio decks for today said, give thought to writing to an old friend you haven't heard from lately, and thus is the reason for this letter. And if you will work yours out, you will see that it also applies to you. Um, okay. Here we go. In 1984, I believe it is your 84th birthday. This is, um, congratulations. I sincerely wish you, um, whatever. I looked up some letters from you written some 30 years ago, and they brought back happy memories. We first met in 1952 on the train returning from Victoria Beach and arranged to meet the next day. We spent a holiday together in Banff in 1954. And I recall canoeing on the Bow River, taking walks through the woods, having dinner at the Chateau Lake Louise, during which we conversed in French. It was one of the happiest holidays I can remember. I wish it were possible to, I'm gonna cry, to turn back the clock. Parting was very sad when it ended, and I wrote a poem on the bus expressing my feelings. I still have some of your letters, and reading them brings back happy memories. I wish it were possible to turn back the clock. They're old, JT's 84, when he wrote this. And that's the last thing in the file. And JT died in 1986, is that what I read? Okay. I feel like we should be having a glass of wine and raising a... Yeah, you have raising a toast. <sighs> mm -hmm. I'd like to, you know, recreate that scene of, 
of JT and, and Casimir meeting on the train and what was that first yeah. that that the day later they're taking walks on a romantic yeah so what road. happened in that brief exchange on the train that turned into a lifelong friendship um, it's a movie assuming Casimir remembers correctly well, he was looking at old letters, okay. is what he said. So, and then that sparked the memory of their meeting in 1952. And, you know, well, we, we'll, we'll assume he remembers correctly, <laughs> right? Of course, and what he remembers and what JT would remember may be different. Mm. You know, anytime we do that, we go on a holiday and you come back and you're talking about it and the people that were with you, what? You know, I don't remember that. Yes, you must remember. Like the things that make an impression... Yeah. on us <laughs> are different hmm. but you know that would I think that's well I, I'd like to think it was 1952 as he said and okay so Casimir passed away at the age of 87 on July 12 2001 oh. he'd been in a senior's place for seven years um, he was survived by a sister. Uncle Kaz was like a father to Patty and Robert. He served in the RCAF from 1939 to 1943. Gee, maybe he knew my dad. Had many interests in including music, art, literature, calligraphy, and travel. His greatest passion was dance. He was a founding, that's what I thought, a founding member of the Royal Winnipeg Ballet and danced classical and character roles until 1952. So he had only just stopped dancing when they met. He used to write for Dance Magazine, which I remember reading all the time. Um, and he was writing a history book on the Royal Winnipeg Ballet and that was not completed due to his illness. Oh. So he was 87 when he died? Yeah. In 2001, so go back to 1952. He's 38 when they met. So and 38 and 52. Okay, so that's a... That's a... Yeah. Decent gap. But, yeah. I don't know. Wouldn't it be fun, you know, those, that niece and nephew that uh, Uncle Kaz was like a father to Patty and Robert. Patty and Robert are still around. It'll be fun to get in touch with them and just say, you know what? Your uncle is not really dead to us, dead because here we are reading yeah. all of these letters. That would be cool. Yeah. Thank you, Laurel. Thanks for guiding us through. Oh, my pleasure. You know, I get pretty excited about all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, really, I, I wish you well on your quest. I know we'll, we'll do something again. Yeah, thanks for the idea. I hope this at least gets someone else interested in JT and Carter's, or Casimir's story. Yeah, yeah. It's a movie. It's a movie. Can't you see it? From the meeting on the train, in 1952, and let's imagine that John made a trip out to see Casimir when he had the beginning of Alzheimer's. Well, he did. He went out to Winnipeg, right? We don't know if he was already um, maybe a little symptomatic, but you know, it's like the full arc of their their young, youthful passion and their ease or dis-ease into old age, and you know, such is such is life and love. Oh. <laughs> and with that, it was time to hop back in the car to take Corey to the next stop. 
We drove out to the Alberta Legislature grounds and walked across the grass to meet Fort Edmonton Park's Tom Long by the Eternal Flame out back. If you're not from Edmonton, Fort Ed is a history park centered around a replica of the old fur trading fort that the modern city of Edmonton grew out of. Good. That was like the classic, oh hey guys, there moment, reading a paper. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Corey, I'm Tom. Nice to meet you. My name is Tom Long and I'm the Public Interpretation Coordinator at Fort Edmonton Park, which means that uh, myself and a colleague uh, are in charge of the interpreters, the interpretive narratives, the messages and the programming, mainly for the summer season, but uh, with our colleagues also for the winter events and um, rental season. We are meeting not at Fort Ed, because mm -hmm. you've generously met us on your day off. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we're actually meeting on a site close to where Fort Ed was last physically before it was torn down, right? Before they moved it to the park? Yeah, that's right. The uh, sort of bowling green flat area in front of the legislature, and uh, that was the site of Fort Edmonton 5 um, before it was torn down in 1915 and uh, then reconstructed at Fort Edmonton Park. We're curious to learn more about the Fort Edmonton uh, Queer History Initiatives because you guys have been doing some research on queer history in Edmonton leading up to 1929, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Fort Edmonton's mandate is sort of 1795 or pre-contact Edmonton to 1929. And um, that sort of encompasses a multitude of different Edmonton stories. Generally, it's limited by the um, tangible aspects on site, like the houses we have, the buildings we have. But there's Fort Edmonton is so big that we have that flexibility to tell different stories even outside of buildings um, and tangible representations that often cost thousands of dollars to bring down there. And um, a couple of years ago, I uh, watched a webinar um, by Susan Ferentinos, who's an um, expert in um, uh, queer history and museums from the United States. And uh, it was just one of the most inspiring things I'd ever seen, and I thought we could probably do this. So we've utilized for the last two years uh, skip grants um, from uh, the government to hire undergrad researchers to do a little bit of um, uh, research into it. It's still very much in the beginning stages, but we're starting to have a good collection. The research that those students did through SKIP, that's the Serving Communities and Partnership Program, they put it into a document about gender, sexuality, and queer history in Alberta. That's the document that Tom sent to Corey when Corey was doing his Queer History Instagram series. I first heard about this project through Laura Nichol. Yes. Um, she's a volunteer coordinator, right? Volunteer and outreach coordinator. So yeah. she reached out to me and she just said, hey, we're doing this thing, we don't know what it's going to be yet, but yeah. we just want you to think about it. Um, and I got to meet Stuart, um, who was one of the researchers working on it last year. Mm -hmm. um, and I, my mind was just blown that Fort Ed was thinking about this. I don't know many history institutions in the city that are actively thinking about queer history. And um, it was just neat to see that this place that so many of us go is, is engaged in that process already. Um, so I was curious, how did uh, the researchers who worked on that document, how, how do they go about it? How do you dig up stories from that long ago? Yeah, it's a good question. They didn't have an easy time. So um, several years ago, uh, like I said, we had that experience with a webinar by Susan Ferentinos, who uh, gave us a few tips afterwards. And then some of our staff um, contacted um, Darren Hagen, who's uh, worked a lot on the history of the Strand Theatre and a timeline of um, queer history of his own, and I think alongside the Institute 
um, uh, minority sexual studies and then some other groups in town who are doing it. And so they provided a few nuggets of just like quick stories or ideas that these researchers could follow up on. And then we had two wonderful, uh, three wonderful uh, Skip Grant uh, students. So Stuart McDougall was one who was in charge of reaching out to people in the community and asking um, for advice and um, making contacts. Indra Prakash and um, Bria Saeed. Bria was our first uh, researcher and she was uh, really wonderful. Um, and I'm so glad I remembered her name. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, we basically just sent them to the city archives, the provincial archives, the University of Alberta, and said, here are some ideas, follow up on them. And um, the Skip Grant provided them with about 50 hours of research time. And uh, through the um, various avenues, including, of course, the internet is so valuable now, and so many um, old newspapers, they started to come up with these stories. And then we would work with them to um, organize them into a, a document that our interpreters could use um, to really tell these stories, but also so valuable. Indra and Bria were both from the um, gender studies department, and so they knew the the language and could give us the tools in understanding um, and conveying understanding to our interpreters, many of whom may not have encountered a lot of this before, about what the difference is between sex and gender and orientation and how to use those words, and then how to use those words and how they apply through time as well as um, in the present. What were maybe some of the nuggets you sent people out with to follow follow up on? Yeah, so um, uh, the Edmonton Journal did a wonderful series a couple of years ago. Um, Chris Stebb was the uh, main journalist involved and they did This Day in History segments, um, now lamentably no longer. But um, one of the cases was a young person by the name of Corinne uh, Laboucan who passed uh, themselves off as Jack uh, Laboucan and worked uh, from 1925 to 1930 on um, roustabout working crews in Alberta around Edmonton and um, then were um, uh, discovered as it were as um, being born a woman and uh, put back in a dress and sent back home with some uh, quote fatherly advice from the judge um, and so we wanted to find out more about that and that led to more uh, interesting parts again in terms of um, gender performance and identity one of the uh, really exciting parts was we kept turning up all these photographs of women dressed as men in the early 1900s and they all had these sort of smiles on their face where they knew it was you know it was obviously something they were doing as a joke but it just kept coming up over and over again it was so interesting one of them in fact was emily murphy um, dressed in a top hat and men's clothes and um, so what one of our researchers found out was that uh, the uh, canadian women's press club um, which was formed in 1904, I think, uh, for women journalists, held a party in 1927 um, where all the women involved um, came dressed as uh, famous literary figures who, of course, in 1927 were still mostly men. And so all these women came dressed as men, including Emily Murphy, solving the mystery of why we had a picture of Emily Murphy dressed as a man. But it was this really interesting time because, um, you know, these women were already crossing gender boundaries by having careers as journalists. Um, and so the smirk, I think, maybe I'm reading too much into their uh, facial expression in these pictures are because um, or possibly attributed to the fact that they uh, are um, making explicit this uh, gender transgression that they're already involved in through their career and they're just sort of making it explicit by dressing up as men. 
Um, so that was one of the more interesting things we found, I thought. Quick correction, Tom meant 1930 to 1935. Um, I've learned more about Fort Ed in the past few years. When I was a kid, I used to think of it as a place with a lot of buildings where you go and see old physical objects and old physical buildings. So it's interesting to hear you talk about this as this initiative as, as being something that might not translate that way into the park. So like there's not going to be a, a bathhouse that people will visit, right? <laughs> um, is there any like physical history that you guys are trying to acquire that might help tell this story? I think one of the uh, types of programs we're experimenting with on 1920 Street is a, a book club, um, where rather than a building, we use a, a historical antique book. And uh, if it brings out ideas uh, that we want to talk about, that's the tangible part of history you can use to talk about the intangible idea. So a good example would be uh, in 1923, um, there's a book called A National Crime, and it was the first uh, expose on residential schools. And so we can use that. We're not going to rebuild a residential school at Fort Edmonton Park necessarily, but we can use this book to talk about that topic. Similarly, um, one of the stories uh, that came out in our research was uh, James Outram, who was uh, from England and was sent to Western Canada in 1900 um, by his family um, for, to correct uh, what they called a temporary blemish on his masculinity, uh, which was that he was um, engaged in relationships with uh, teenage boys. And uh, so in Western Canada, this idea of this, you know, rough, rugged landscape, he reinvented himself as a mountaineer and uh, as a, um, uh, an expert in uh, mountains and outdoor pursuits and uh, retired or moved to Vermilion and then wrote about it. Um, so I'd love to get a copy of uh, that book he wrote and then use that in the book club to share with visitors and then talk about James's story. Um, uh, so that's one of those easy parts where we're uh, not necessarily easy, but easier than moving an entire building or reconstructing an entire building. As long as we have a tangible um, element to it, then we can tell a story based on that. What crime was Corinne charged with? Uh, uh, pled guilty to a charge of vagrancy. Vagrancy. And vagrancy was a sort of a catch-all charge um, that just referred to not necessarily having a home uh, or a permanent place of residence, but the police in the late 19th century and early 20th century could use it um, pretty uh, widely for just anything that they thought was out of the ordinary and uh, could generally um, apply it successfully to just about a, a wide variety of um, transgressions that they didn't like. Yeah, some of the criminal offenses you could get charged with back then were so vague. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm trying to think of that other one. Um, there You're were looking two, up your Instagram? Yeah, there were, like, two men that were, um, oh, yeah, well, just, like, gross indecency. <laughs> yeah. Like, two men were caught kissing in a car or something. Mm. Yeah, thanks for walking us through all that. Oh, I'm happy, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to have a chance to share it and talk about it. Uh, we're happy with it, but it's a start and not a finish, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it develop more. And on that note, we broke for the day, and reconvened a week later to take Corey to our final destination, an apartment building on Jasper Avenue, to meet Carmen Lita Ordonez. Because some stories you can only learn by meeting the person who lived them. Hello, hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Hi, Great. Samantha. Corey. Hi, Corey. Nice Come in, you. please. Yeah. Thanks for being us. Thank you for coming. 
pictures off? Yeah, if you want. <laughs> so you have the opportunity to not wear shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are those from Ecuador? The, yes. Yeah. yeah, from Ecuador. Are you from Ecuador? Yes, I'm from Ecuador, yeah. So. Okay, so a little bit of background on how I met Lita. We have a mutual friend, Jaya Chilan, who I was in a community group with. And uh, last year, um, when I got appointed to the Historian Laureate thing, Jaya just said, hey, you absolutely have to meet my friend Lita. She's <laughs> such an interesting person. She has such a cool life story. And it, there's, it, it needs to be out there. More people need to know about Lita's life, basically. So last year when I came over, you showed me all your paintings and stuff, and we sort of talked about some of your journeys and it was really interesting but I had nowhere to put it at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you mind starting by just telling us um, how you ended up moving from Ecuador to Canada? What, what was happening in Ecuador and then how did you guys end up deciding to leave? It was nothing major that happened in Ecuador. It was just a personal decision that my husband and I would decide to to venture to another country, and we chose Canada. Um, and how did you and your husband meet? I met my husband through a, a member of our family. Um, when you were growing up, you were raised in a religious background, is that right? Yes, our family, they were very Catholic. Yeah, I was educated in a private school with nuns and a very orthodox uh, community, I will say. When you got married to your husband, um, what did you know about yourself and your own sexuality at that time? I think I, I, I knew my sexuality then. However, I just uh, want to be part of the society and integrate as any other woman and carry on the socials and norms of that uh, the Ecuadorian society, I will say. You know, what part of Ecuador are you from? I am from the south of Ecuador, a city that calls Loja. Okay. Yes. It's funny, my partner's from Guayaquil, actually. <laughs> from, that's the capital in Ecuador, right? Guayaquil is? No, Guayaquil's not the capital. It's a, it's a big city, almost like here in Canada, let's say. Uh, Vancouver or something, because by the coast, yeah, it's very warm there. The capital of Ecuador is Quito, oh, in right. the north, okay. yeah, and I'm from the south, okay. yes. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know, it's, I had no idea. Well, I saw the um, pillows, I'm like, that's definitely like Ecuador or Peru or something. Lita told us she was five months pregnant when she moved to Canada. They came to Montreal first, then to Edmonton. And then what... What changed between you and your husband when you got to, uh, when you came out west here? It didn't change anything. Uh, we're still in the in the Maslow's pyramid, and you know the first stage of survival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, then uh, we had three children. Then our second child came, and then our third child come mm -hmm. yeah um and eventually there was a point where you, something did shift and you you felt like that marriage wasn't 
right for you anymore, right? Yes, uh, you're right. It arrives to the point that uh, you've been yearned for that freedom for some time, and you can't suppress those feelings anymore. And uh, it came to the point that I, I have to decide, you know, to be free, to be myself, and that's when I divorced my husband, yeah. And he was very understanding. It was very difficult because I had to get into therapy. My children had to get into therapy so, to, you know, to have the family together and they can understand, you know, what's about being a lesbian and all that stuff that I, I, I know even myself understood very well what's going on. How did you, when did you know that something needed to change in your life? Well, I suppressed my feelings for so many years. It arrives to the point that it's like, a, you know, an atomic bomb inside of you that <laughs> you can't retain it anymore. It has to come out somehow. Yeah. Wow. An atomic bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Were there any external influences on you that that helped explode that bomb? <laughs> well, analyzing myself, the reason to come to Canada, we were, you know, searching for venture and migration. But at the end of the day, I think deep inside, come to Canada was just to achieve my freedom as a lesbian because uh, I couldn't, you know, divorce or even live that life in Ecuador. So Canada liberates me in that sense. Since then, Lita's had quite a life. She told us about starting work as a social worker and how she was the main motivator in unionizing the women's shelter where she worked in Hinton, Alberta. And now today, she's a painter. As an artist, uh, I, I didn't come until late in life. I didn't know that I have the skill it was when my father passed away in Ecuador, I went there, and he was there in a hill. So we all, you know, walked to the top of the hill with my father. And I got distracted by this wildflower, so I took a picture of it. And then when I came back to Canada, I had an urge to paint that, that, that picture. That's how I started painting. Can you tell us a little bit about the paintings around us? Because we're sitting in your living room and we are surrounded on many sides by things that you have created, these beautiful, colorful figures. Lita's paintings were displayed on almost every wall of her living room. Lots of them were inspired by the famous Ecuadorian artists Guayasamin and Eduardo Kingman. That one is, <laughs> actually that one, that was a man and a woman, so I made it two women there. <laughs> it calls the kiss. <laughs> it's great, that explosion. Thank you. And, um, why, why do you love painting so much now? Why is this such a big part of your life today? I like painting because it, it takes me to a different level a different uh, unconscious level. When I'm painting, I'm, uh, I feel like that's, that's just the time for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been taking Corey on this journey, trying to learn about queer history, 
because it's interesting, but also because um, for people like us who are like, you know, in our, we're growing up in the early 2000s, in lots of ways, our lives feel safer and freer to us than they would have been a couple decades ago. Yes. Um, what do you think has changed for gay and lesbian and queer and trans people over the years in, in Alberta and Edmonton? I feel that has changed because we are uh, more knowledgeable. We get educated about it, and um, there is more inclusion and participation of a group of different people like us. There's more inclusion, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, being a gay or lesbians. It's wonderful. Yeah. I find myself to actually have an advantage than just being a heterosexual person. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I feel that I was born with something extra. I always feel that way, yeah. That I was born gifted with something extra. Hmm. I don't know what extra will be, but that's how I feel. <laughs> um. You were sort of talking about how things have changed um, when you decided to tell your family. Um, was there a community around you that you felt comfortable talking to about um, the, how you wanted to approach um, coming out? Actually, I came out here in Canada, mm -hmm. which my family is not here. So um, I haven't told my family. Oh, really? Yes, I haven't. But I think it is just guess that I am a lesbian, but they, they don't talk about Did you have other people around you here in Canada that, were, that could support you at that time? I went for therapy for about six months to the, through the University of Alberta. One of the students that are doing their master's degrees I think it, that was the only support I have in that time. Wow. Um, so only having a therapist to chat with about this must have been quite difficult. Did you eventually come to find a, a community um, of support? I did find actually some support in the community. I used to go to those uh, gay and lesbian dance, just, just to dance there. And it was a, such a wonderful experience to be able to just dance and be free and not to worry about the people looking at you as a weird person. <laughs> Where were those dances? They were here in downtown and this place called Rooster. I don't think it exists anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Roost. The Roost, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was a good place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you were talking, like say somebody was coming out like they're kind of like struggling with coming out what kind of advice would or like what kind of support or advice would you suggest that person my support to someone that's coming out will be that um, just go ahead if you have fear do it anyways because I don't want that person to uh, suppress their feelings for too long because 
is going to be like the atomic bomb that I have at the end. I, I had to come out regardless. Yeah. I have a question. Did you, so um, obviously you speak Spanish. Did you learn English just when you came to Canada? Yes, I did learn English when I came to Canada, to the west part of Canada. Oh, okay. When uh, we immigrated to Montreal, so I learned French over there first. Oh, so you know, oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so when we immigrate, we migrate to uh, Edmonton, and I went to the social work school, so I had to learn English. Okay. So that's when I learned English, yeah. My boyfriend's mom is coming like in August from Ecuador. She's staying with us for a month oh, and she only speaks Spanish. And so, and I don't know how to speak Spanish. So <laughs> I need to like, I need to learn or I'm, I'm going to learn while I'm, while she's here. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you, you can come and visit me with the yeah. family. Yeah. That yeah. would be, yeah, be I'll a, s- a pleasure to meet them. Yeah. yeah. Cause they, well, she's actually from, she's half Chinese and then she moved. Um, so she moved from China. Well, no, no, she's full Chinese, but she's been living in Ecuador. Um, she met her husband there. And um, so, yeah, she's has been living in Ecuador for, I guess, most of her life. In yeah. Guayaquil. Or in Guayaquil. Guayaquil, yeah. yeah. yeah so. we, it will be an honor to have him as a guest. To have them as a guest. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I'll get in touch with you. That'd yes. be awesome. Yeah. Sorry, my heart just burst a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this feels like a good time to ask you, Corey, if you don't mind, um, just to kind of share, what do you feel like you've learned across our, our road trip um, of, of history? Wow. It's, I was thinking about that before I came here. Um, and I've been kind of reflecting on the idea of like the importance of hearing people's stories. And I think that's so important. Um, just because, like, it's, like, connecting to other people and, like, hearing their story. I think it just broadens your perspective on everything. Like, I think the more that we can connect and, like, hear people's stories, um, I think it's just really good for everyone. Not only, like, listening to stories, but also giving people the opportunity to share their stories. Um, and it was kind of a cool contrast to think about how, like, we're piecing together the story of John and Casimir with their love letters and then hearing, like, Lita talk like about her story like as it's happening and then kind of I guess with the story from um, Fort Edmonton the one about Corinne slash Jack Labuken yeah and just kind of like that story that we we know more details about than I guess um, Casimir and John but um, I think what it's given me is just more perspective um I feel like we've done a good service to like respecting queer history by like taking the time to learn about these stories. Um, yeah, it's I've learned a lot and I love it. <laughs> it's really cool listening to people talk about their lives. And then I have to admit, I used to like when I was in university in high school, I would just like I thought history wasn't really that important. Like I was like, why are we learning about things that have happened? But that's totally shifted over the last couple of years for me because it's just it informs so much of how we can move forward I think and it's just super interesting <laughs> and so I feel kind of bad because I used to just like what's the like we have to think forward like why are we like talking about our history so much but it's it's so important thank you so much Lita for inviting us into your home 
And thank you for coming over. It was a pleasure to have you all. So we set out with a simple question. Where can you learn about queer history in Edmonton? And it seems like stories are all around, just below the surface. Hiding in boxes at the archives, waiting for a patient eye. They're being gathered by our heritage institutions, and lots of folks in our city have them to share. We've been here all along. We just needed someone to listen. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. This podcast is produced by Samantha Power and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. We love hearing your feedback about Let's Find Out, and we want your questions about Edmonton history. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. If you go to our website, we've got tons of pictures up for this episode, including one of Casimir Carter that he sent to JT Jones, and some of the letters we read out today. And of course, Lita's paintings are up there too. I also post between episodes on the Facebook page for Edmonton's Historian Laureate. One small correction from this trip. I looked it up afterward, and it seems like Casimir might have had JT's birthday wrong. JT Jones was born in 1898, so he would have been about 86 when Casimir wrote that letter, not 84. Okay, thank you time. Thank you to Corey DeGroote, Laurel Diedrich Main, Tom Long, and Carmen Lita Ordonez. Thanks also to Jim Franks and everybody else at the University of Alberta Archives, the Edmonton Public Library, and the Edmonton Journal. And a special thanks to Patty Locke Lukowicz for chatting with me about her uncle Casimir. There's so much more to the story, and I hope we can share more down the road. Thanks to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast. To everyone who's been supporting it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the extraordinarily lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. All right, that's it for this month. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>